0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew, chapter 18. I'll read verses 15 through 20. And Jesus says, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. This evening's message, I hope, will be an instructive message, and the subject that we have tonight is church discipline. And I begin by stating that here in Matthew chapter 18, we have what is often regarded as the classic passage on church discipline. But this passage is not the only passage in the New Testament that deals with this subject. There are a number of other passages which deal with it as well. I will point out very briefly to you two of them. And the first is found in the book of Second Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians and in chapter 3. And Paul in this chapter, he addresses some among the Thessalonians who were living a disorderly life, and they were not working or providing their own needs, but they were living off of others. And Paul addresses them, we see in verse 11, he says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busy bodies, and the nature of this sin was not so serious, not so dangerous, and not so inconsistent with the gospel that they should be removed from the church. But they ought to be called to repentance and a turning from their sins. So Paul says to them in verse 11, he says, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own Bread. And then until they repent, then they must come under some form of public discipline. And Paul addresses this back in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition of which you have received from us. So the person is a brother, and he is to be uh, the congregation, the people are to in some manner stand aloof from him. Now we look down to verses 15 and 16, and he says, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter in regard to turning away from the unruly life, he says, take special note of that man And do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. So the person here still remains in the fellowship of the church and experiences this in some manner being marked special note of him, the church does not associate with him in full manners of fellowship with him, so in some way there is this discipline, perhaps the loss of some of the privileges of church membership and fellowship, so that he feels his shame and is brought to repentance, but he remains a member of the church at this time. There may be such sins that take place in the lives of believers where this Passage of church discipline should be used. But then we can turn to another passage in the book of Romans, chapter 16. In Romans, chapter 16. And Paul says here in verse 17 Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. So the man here is being marked by the elders of the church. The church, the entire church is to turn away from him so as not to be infected with his false teaching. And this would be a form of church discipline upon false teachers as well. There are other passages similar in which those who are teaching heresies are dealt with. There is the discipline of elders who continue in their sin. Other passages in the letters to Timothy and to Titus. So the New Testament gives various occasions of discipline and differing procedures to deal with them. Sometimes one passage is all you need. Sometimes there are a combination of passages which must be used depending on the circumstances and the nature of the sin. Sometimes one passage morphs into another passage. And so there are a variety of circumstances and the Word of God guides us in how these matters should be handled. So Matthew chapter 18 is a most important passage, but it is clearly not the only passage in regard to church discipline. We'll turn back to Matthew chapter 18. Now, my purpose tonight is to deal with two of the most prominent passages in the New Testament, concerning church discipline, and note some distinctions between them for our edification tonight. The first passage that we'll deal with here is Matthew chapter 18. The second passage is the one we read earlier, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we begin, let me make several comments about church discipline. We might ask the question, why is church discipline, even necessary. When I say necessary, I mean that there are sins that require the church to carry out discipline. The sins cannot be ignored. They cannot be neglected or denied. There are sins that take place, which cannot simply be passed over, and so that church discipline is not an option, but it is a necessity. But why is church discipline necessary? And there are five reasons I give to you very briefly. The first is the character of God himself. I mean the holiness of God. He is a holy God and he demands holiness among his own people. We see this in the Old and in the New Testaments as well. The Lord says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so the holiness of God is to be reflected in the holiness of his own people. And when there is not holiness among his people, then his character is maligned. Sin must be removed for the sake of the holiness and the purity of his name. So here we speak of a vertical, our vertical relationship with God. His holiness must be reflected in our Lives. A second reason is a horizontal reason, a similar reason, which is the testimony of the church before the world. The church is to be made up of a regenerate membership, of those who have a new nature and a new heart. And the lives of those who are in the church is to be distinctly different from those of the world. We are called the saints, we are called the holy ones. And so we are the ones who are to show the righteousness and the goodness of living according to God's law. We are to be the light of the world in the dark world. We are to be the salt of the earth. The testimony of the church before the onlooking world is compromised when sin is tolerated and discipline is not maintained. A third reason for church discipline is that it is a warning to the rest of the church members concerning the seriousness of sin. In church discipline, we see the gravity of sin. We see the deceitfulness and the danger that it can lead to. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 20, he said, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may be fearful of sinning. So that's what church discipline should do to the rest of us. It should make us fearful of sinning. It should make us more earnest in watching over our own hearts and lives with all diligence because the only thing that keeps us from falling under church discipline for ourselves is the grace of God and his mercy toward us. A fourth reason church discipline is necessary is because it is a mark of a true church. There are three marks of a true church. The first is the sound preaching of the doctrines of the word of God. The second is the proper administration of the sacraments in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the third mark of a true church is the faithful exercise of church discipline. Jesus and his apostles in the passages that we have looked at and will look at, they bring up church discipline because they anticipated that there would be sin in the life of the church as we live in this fallen world. It is inevitable, and so Christ commands us how we are to deal with it when it arises. The, church, the act of church discipline is never pleasant or desirable but it is necessary and no church can neglect the command of Christ for church discipline. When it is necessary, it must be done according to his word if the church is to remain true to him and to continue to experience his blessings. One man put it this way, no church can neglect discipline and survive. Look at the book of Revelation. Read the letters to the seven churches. And what is so often mentioned, so often Jesus, what is he dealing with? He is dealing with matters of church discipline. And if the church does not carry out the discipline, then he says, I will remove my lampstand from among you. No church can survive by neglecting church discipline. A fifth reason for church discipline is the restoration of the one who has sinned. And that's what we find here in Matthew chapter 18. That the one who has sinned would see the gravity and the danger of his sin and turn back from it and be restored into the fellowship of Christ and the church. Now in this passage in Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20, the primary purpose of Jesus is not for one to be removed from the church, but for one to be kept in the church. That's his purpose. Not to remove one, but to keep one in. The preservation of believers has been the theme of Christ, and that's what we see in the context of this passage. If we look back to verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are those who tempt others into sin, He says, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And then in verses 8 and 9, he speaks of how by the grace of God it is possible to even overcome such temptations by taking radical measures of cutting off one's hand or foot and plucking out one's eye, whatever is necessary to avoid and overcome such temptations. And his purpose is the preservation of his little ones. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. A most remarkable statement there in verse 10, that his people on earth... They have angels in heaven before the throne of God who behold the face of God there in heaven and they are sent from his throne to protect and strengthen them. And everyone, anyone who despises one of his little ones does so at his own peril. And so while we do not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of guardian angels, we must believe what Jesus says here in verse 10. And his purpose is for our salvation, for our preservation, in verse 11, to save that which was lost. Now we look at verse 12 through 14. He gives a parable. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So here the goal of the Good Shepherd, which is the will of the Heavenly Father, is the preservation, the keeping of all of his people. That if one does go astray, that he be recovered and restored so that not one of his little ones would perish. And then, after verse 14, he brings up the whole matter of church discipline. This is what verses 15 through 20 are all about, that if one goes astray, that he be recovered, that there be joy in heaven, and that the will of the heavenly Father is that not one of his little ones should perish We should also now look at verse 21. And after Jesus speaks those words in verses 15 through 20, then we read in verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. So Peter knew what Jesus had just been saying in verses 15 through 20. Peter knew what it was all about, it was about forgiveness. The scribes, they would say that you should forgive your brother three times. Peter perhaps thought that he was being very large-hearted when he offered to forgive seven times. But Jesus said forgiveness is not something that can be measured by quantities or by numbers, but forgiveness is rather a continuing attitude of the heart, which is what he means in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Continuously, a spirit of forgiveness. And then this becomes the occasion of Jesus' parable of forgiveness in the following verses of the king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when one of them who owed owed a great amount had no means to repay, then he came and begged the king for Patience, the king had compassion on him and forgave him his debt. And This is what has happened to all of us as believers. We have been forgiven a very great debt by the king of heaven. But then in the parable, the slave went out and he refused to forgive smaller debts of his fellow slaves. And when the king found out about this, we read in verses 32 and following, Then summoning him, his lord, the king said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his slave moved with anger, his lord, his king moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So this is the context of these words of Jesus in verses 15 through 20, which informs us of the spirit in which these words must be carried out with a desire for his people to be preserved and not one of them to perish, which is the will of the heavenly father as seen in the parable of the lost sheep. And it must all be done with a desire and a readiness to forgive, as shown in the parable of forgiveness that follows. And so the primary purpose of Jesus in this procedure is not for one to be removed from the church, but for one to be kept in the church, and if possible, to be forgiven and restored based on repentance. One commentator writes, It must always be the aim of church discipline, not to deliver excommunication by due process, but to recover the lost and to restore the straying sheep. So that's the context of these verses. Now we come to the verses and the procedure itself in verse 15 and following. We may break this into four steps. The first is found in verse 15. And Jesus says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The situation envisioned here is that one brother or sister has sinned against another and the one sinned against, the one who has been offended, takes the initiative and lovingly goes to the one who has offended and reproves Him in private. The word reprove means to show him his fault with an attitude of seeking his good that he may see his fault and he may turn, repent from it. The words in private can be translated between you and him alone. So at this point, we may assume that this is not a public sin which everyone knows. The church has not yet been told. The church will not even know about the sin until the church is told down in verse 17. And so the only two people who know about it are the two spoken of in verse 15. And the reproof is made in private between the two members, which makes it easier for the one who has sinned to repent and acknowledge his sin. And Jesus says now in verse 15, If he listens to you, which means that he acknowledges his sin and he has repented of his sin, which would include his desire to be forgiven of the wrong that he has committed. If he listens to you and this takes place, then he says you have won your brother, which is the desired outcome. You have won your brother. He is your brother at this point and you have persuaded him, he has seen his sin, there should be forgiveness, there should be reconciliation and restoration of full fellowship between the two brothers or sisters. And so the whole process now comes to an end because it is not a public matter. There is no need for any further escalation and nothing more needs to be done. But if the one who has sinned does not repent... Then the process moves to the second step found in verse 15 or 16. In the first half of verse 16, Jesus says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. The purpose of bringing these one or two more with you is threefold. First, to confirm that the sin being addressed is really of such a nature that one must be called to repentance over it. In other words, it is not among the common, ordinary sins that so often take place among believers, those kinds of sins where which Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 and where he says that love covers a multitude of sins, or to ensure that it is, does not fall into that category of what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So the offended brother here in verse 15, he must be able to convince two or three others that this process must be pursued. And so this confirms the seriousness and it confirms the gravity of the sin committed and the one who has called his brother to repent, in verse 15, he must consider that he may need to do this as he begins the process. A second pers- purpose of bringing one or two more witnesses is to add persuasion to the case. Because the voices of one or two more may have more success in convincing one of his sin than the voice of One brother alone. A third reason is found at the end of verse 16, where Jesus says, So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now, these words come from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. The two or three witnesses here are the same as those in the first half of the verse. And this is preparation this is preparation for what may follow if the matter is brought to the church because in the efforts to in efforts to justify himself the one who has sinned may not only deny his sin but make false accusations against the one who has confronted him over it and he may make the matter hopelessly complicated and so two or three witnesses will now be able not only to confirm the seriousness of the sin, but also be witnesses of everything that was said and how everything was conducted, and be able to testify to the church of all that had happened. But now, if the offending brother still does not repent, then we come to step three in the beginning of verse 17. He says, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So now the entire church is made aware of the sin. And the entire church is now involved in the process of calling the sinning brother to repentance so that it is not just the single brother in verse 15 And it is not now just the two or three witnesses in verse 16. And it is not just the elders of the church, but it is the entire church and all of the individual members as they are able and all of them collectively united together with one voice seeking to call the sinning brother to repentance. They all agree on the seriousness of the charge. They all agree on the danger of the sin and they are all of one mind that the brother must be called to turn from his wrong. Then, in the beginning of verse 17, we now come to the last step and if he refuses to listen to To the, uh, to the church. Now here we, the church has been told, and now in the middle of verse 17 we read, if he refuses to listen even to the church. Now notice the phrase, if he refuses to listen, is found three times in the passage in this process. First back in the beginning of verse 16 if he does not listen to you, that is to the individual brother who went in verse 15, then again in the beginning of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, to the two or three witnesses who have gone, and then once again in the middle of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church. So three times now the offending brother or sister has been lovingly confronted by other members of the church. First by the one brother alone in private in verse 15, then by the two or three witnesses, and then finally now by the entire church, and each time he or she has refused to listen. And on the last refusal, in the middle of verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church the word even is significant because it reveals the extent of the refusal that he will not even he will not listen even to the united testimony and the urging of the entire church if the one who has sinned is a true believer then one would expect that the knowledge of his entire church condemning him for his sin, the entire church calling him to repentance, one would expect that this would have great influence upon him to humble him and bring him to repentance. Jesus speaks here as if there is nothing more that can be done. There is no more authoritative voice on earth that can speak to him above the church. The highest court of his kingdom, which is his church, has spoken. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, now the stubbornness of heart and his determination to go in his own way is fully revealed. And then the last thing is in the end of verse 17. Let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax gatherer. This is what is called excommunication, which means the brother or sister is now removed from the membership of the church and is regarded as an unbeliever. Nothing worse can happen to a person in this life than to have once been regarded as a member of the church, as a true believer, but then to be cast out, regarded as an unbeliever, who has no part in Christ and no part of his salvation. The goal, even at this point, is still to win the brother. The goal is still to bring him back to repentance so that there can be forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And if the sinning person is a true believer, then the hope is that the combined voice of the church will have this good effect upon him, And if not, even at this time, perhaps sometime in the future, so that he will come to his senses and he will be humbled and he will be turned back from his sinful ways. So Jesus now speaks of the authority of the church to carry out this process of discipline in verse 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We notice Jesus begins in the verse with those words of solemnity, truly I say to you, or I tell you the truth, I solemnly declare to you, nothing could be more solemn than the matter that is being dealt with here because there are eternal realities which are being addressed. Now Jesus speaks of binding and loosing which are terms that we are not familiar with. To bind here means to exclude from the church, as if to bind and then to remove from the church. So when he says there in verse 18, whatever you shall bind on earth, meaning whomever you shall remove from the church, then he says, shall be bound in heaven, meaning will have already been bound in heaven. And then, and whatever you shall loose on earth, meaning whatever you have now, loosing means readmitting. Whatever you have loose, you shall loose on earth, meaning whatever you have readmitted into the church shall be loosed in heaven, meaning will have already been admitted in heaven. So if this procedure of Christ is followed, carried out as it should be, with a desire for the restoration of the brother or sister, then the verdict of the church will reflect the previous verdict of heaven. Whatever you shall bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. God alone is the judge, and the verdict of his throne is what really matters But if the church carries out these words of Christ, then the verdict of the church will reflect the verdict of heaven. Verse 19, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Now, this verse is obviously in regard to prayer. That is true. But we must remember the context that it is in church discipline. So church discipline, everything that is done in this passage, must be done with prayer. Prayer for the wisdom and grace in dealing with the sinning brother or sister at each step. Prayer for their sincere repentance and recovery. Prayer that the church would do the will of Christ so that the verdict of the church would be according to the verdict of heaven. And then in verse 20, he says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. In their midst. A verse that we often look to for the presence of Christ's promise with the church. And that is true. But we must remember it is in the context of church discipline. And so here the idea is that Christ takes his stand with his church, in the midst of his church, as the church testifies against the sinning brother, where two or three have gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them with my own testimony, joined with theirs against the offending brother. So this is the classic passage of church discipline. And we have looked through it. Now we want to go to the second passage. And then we'll see some contrast between the two. And the second passage is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians and chapter 5. This is the passage that we read earlier. I will not read through it again, but, and I do not have time to make comments on many things, but I want to note certain things in the passage. I want to point out several distinctions in this passage. First, the sin committed here was a public and scandalous sin. This is what we see in verse 1. Paul says it was actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his brother's wife. So this is not a private sin. Here we have a public sin, as Paul says in the beginning of the verse. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. So the news of this had gone out. The news of it was being spread. How far, how wide, we do not know. But the report of it had come to the Apostle Paul, who was over in the city of Ephesus when he wrote this letter. So this was not a private sin, but a very public sin. Martin Luther translates it, it is reported commonly. That's how the King James translates it. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named, even named, among the Gentiles. So a public sin, the report of which had come even to the Apostle Paul. And then secondly, we can say here that it was a scandalous sin. He says in verse one, in the middle of the verse, that it was of such a kind of such a kind that did not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. It was a sin that was so naturally abhorrent that even the pagans outside the church did not practice it. A public, scandalous sin, and as a public and scandalous sin, it had already brought much shame upon the name of Christ and the testimony of the church. A third thing that we can say briefly is that this was a very dangerous sin. It was a sin that was so contrary to the gospel that no one could live in this sin and arrive in heaven. If we look over to chapter 6 for a moment, in verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators... And then he mentions a long list of sins, and at the end of verse 10, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that first sin he mentions there, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. That's the same word in chapter 5 and verse 1 that is translated there, immorality. It's the same word here. Fornicators, fornicators, they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul says the very same thing in other Books of the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, he speaks of this immorality and he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So this was a public, scandalous sin, and it was also a dangerous and soul-destroying sin. If the church were to simply pass over it, if the church were to do nothing, then it would have brought about not only shame to the name of Christ and ruin to the testimony of the church, but the eternal destruction of the one who had committed the sin. So it was public, scandalous, and dangerous to eternal salvation. Then we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2. And Paul says here, And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now, in the first half of the verse, he tells them what their response should have been. They should have mourned over this sin. They should have grieved and been humbled over it. But instead, the Corinthians were arrogant. It seems they thought they knew better And they thought perhaps that they would be more tolerant. They did not want to judge anyone, and so they simply let the sin go on. But it is clear that it was public, the church already knew, and they had not dealt with it properly, but they were, in a sense, sweeping it under the rug. Now, in the second half of verse 2, he tells the church what they ought to have done that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. He is telling them that they should have already already removed this sinning brother from their midst. He is telling them what should have already been done, that they should have mourned, and out of their mourning, they should have already removed this brother in order that the one who has done this deed may be, might be removed from your midst. Then we read verses 3 through 5. He says, For I on my part, although absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have already, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, we do not have time for details here, but the general idea is that Paul had already judged this man. And his removal now must be completed in the gathering of the assembly of the church where the power of Christ was present with them by the Spirit. And although Paul was absent physically, he would be present with them spiritually and by and by removing this man from within the church, he would be le- delivered back out into Satan's kingdom which is what is outside the church, Satan's kingdom, but with the goal of his eventual repentance and salvation in the day of Christ. Now at the end of verse 3, Paul says, I have already judged him who has so committed this. So Paul, he says here that he has already acted, past tense. His judgment of this man is finished. The commentator Lenski says, Paul intends to say that the case is so clear in every respect that he finds no reason to hesitate regarding the verdict, that it is settled and Paul's immediate verdict is justly, is fully justified. And then in verse 4, Paul speaks of the assembled church, that is gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is telling them in verse 4 that they must now act as he has already done to complete the removal of this brother. Paul is saying, I have judged him, now you must remove him from your presence as you gather together as he has already said at the end of verse 3. In verse 7, he says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. The leaven of sin leavens the whole lump. It spreads, as he says back in verse 6, but here in verse 7 he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He is referring here to the Jewish Passover feast, which his readers, many of them, would have been familiar with. The Jews in the Passover feast They mixed a new lump of dough without any leaven in it. All leaven had to be removed from their homes. And the new lump represented their new life of purity and their freedom from the guilt and power of sin. The old leaven represented their former life of sin, which they were to leave behind. So this is what they were to do as a church with regard to the one who had sinned by removing him from their midst. It was a command to clean out the old leaven so that they could be what they ought to be as the church of the Lord Jesus. Now in verses 9 through 11, Paul tells them that they are not to associate with any so-called brother in the church who lives an immoral life. They are not to simply carry on fellowship with him as usual. And then at the end of verse 12, He says they are to exercise judgment on those who are within the church. He says at the end of verse 12, Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So this is the removal at the end of verse 13, what we call the excommunication the removal of the brother from the membership of the church and placing them outside so that they no longer are regarded as brother, a brother within the context of the church membership. So the case here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is clearly different from what we saw back in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, it was first a private sin known only among the two brothers. And there there was the process of the offending brother going, or the the brother offended going in private. And then he would bring several others with him, seeking the repentance of the one who had sinned before it was made public and then told to the church, and the church had to act in removal. Here, the case is, already a publicly known sin. It is public and it is a scandalous sin. The case is clear. The facts are plain. And as soon as Paul received the report, Paul judged the offender. And he commands now the church to do the same. There was no process here of sending one brother to the offender, as in Matthew chapter 18, to reprove him in private and call him to repentance. And if he did not listen to that first brother, then two or three more were sent again. And if he did not listen to them, then the church was told. And if he didn't listen to the church, then he would be removed from the church. There is no such process here taking place because it was not necessary. Because it was already a public and scandalous sin that had already brought shame upon the name of Christ and had already compromised the testimony of the church, and the church had to simply act and to remove the offender from the membership. But then we ask, well, what about if this brother here who has sinned and then been removed, what if he repents? What if he repents? Should he not be restored? The answer is yes, of course he should be restored. And in this case, that is re- exactly what happened. And that's what we read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. As the brother has repented, he has, and Paul urged his forgiveness and his restoration back into the church. In this case of church discipline, By the grace of God, it came to its desired outcome, which was repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. A most amazing thing. Is it not a most remarkable thing that as bad as this sin was, so evil that it was not even named, not even mentioned among the Gentiles. And the brother was removed. But then, by the grace of God, he later came to his senses. This act of church discipline was enacted. Then he came to his senses. He realized the great wrong he had done. He turned back from it. And then he was forgiven. And despite the great wickedness, he was restored into the membership of the church. A most remarkable work of the grace of God in this brother. So there is a difference between the two passages. Matthew chapter 18 it is first private before it becomes public. First Corinthians chapter 5, it is a, immediately a public scandalous and shameful sin on the name of Christ. But another difference in these two cases is in regard to the timing or how long the process takes place. In Matthew chapter 18, There is obviously a step-by-step process that culminates in telling it to the church. And so there must be some period of time given, some period of time given as the process proceeds for the offender to repent. But here in this case, in a public and scandalous sin, in regard to the timing, there are two views that we may consider. The first is that the church acts immediately. And from what Paul says in the passage, as we have seen, an immediate action of the church would be clearly justified. One man writes on the passage, here the offense is gross, unrepented immorality. It is not private, but has become a matter of public scandal. The church must vindicate herself before the onlooking world and must do so immediately. There is no going to the immoral person privately and then with several others as in Matthew chapter 18. Paul wants the man to be excommunicated at their next gathering together as he says in verse 4. If true repentance is forthcoming, then restoration will certainly be in order as it is in second. Corinthians chapter 2. So the first view in terms of the timing of this is immediate. And that would be justified by what the apostle says, it seems, in the passage. A second view in regard to the timing of everything is that as Paul is telling them here in verse 2 at the end of the verse and then in verse 13 to remove the wicked man from among themselves, that is the goal that is the goal of the of the church but the act of the discipline does not take place immediately but out of christian love out of christian parent, patience some reasonable time is given to some reasonable time is given for repentance but it cannot be a long and drawn out time because it is a public and scandalous sin And the honor of Christ and his name and the purity of the church must be vindicated before the onlooking world. If the church were to call the sinning brother to repentance and give a reasonable period of time to wait for his repentance, no one could accuse them of tolerating sin and the name of Christ would be honored. And by the mercy of God, in this case, even after the church has done what it should, repentance may still come, and forgiveness and restoration, which is always the desire of the church in these matters. So these are the two passages, primary passages in the New Testament that deal with matters of church discipline, and we've seen some of the distinctions between them. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we pray that you would have great mercy upon us. Help us as your people to be those who do your will, those who are willing, able, desirous to carry out your word And even when it is grievous and most unpleasant and undesirable for us to do so, we pray that you would help us. We pray that there would be true repentance, that there would be restoration, that there would be forgiveness of all sin. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from all sin. Lord, hear us now. And bless your word to us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.